I'd like you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 3 and also find Ecclesiastes chapter 11. They're just two of the places we're going to be looking at in the Bible. And I want to turn you to different places in the scriptures as we consider some of the things about Solomon and how wise he was. Now, each time I do one of these studies, I'm going to ask a question and seek to answer it. And the question I want to pose is, how did Solomon become so wise? And how can I be wise as well? Can I learn from this? How did he become so wise and how can I? I don't know how many times you've said, I need the wisdom of Solomon. It's a phrase that I think is still used today, even though people are forgetting the Bible and the Bible's gone out the window. People still know phrases from the Bible, and they have no idea, some of them, how many phrases they use are from the Scriptures and are based from the Scriptures. But I think the wisdom of Solomon is still around today. It's legendary. 4,000 years after this man lived, we are still talking about how wise he was. Now, that's a pretty wise man. And yet, down in our little world, in our Nazareth, as I often put it, in our Nazareth living, we need as much wisdom as Solomon needed in his day and age because the choices facing each of us are increasingly difficult and complex as we try and live our lives out in this increasingly and complex, secularized, not Christianized society today. And quite honestly, as I listen to women specifically all around this nation and outside this nation, I'm hearing the same sort of things. It's just as if women are throwing up their hands and lying down and dying and saying, it's too much. I don't know. I can't figure it. It's, it's beyond me. I need the wisdom of Solomon. I need something outside myself to help me cope with the huge complex situations I'm finding myself in. Now, in the New Testament, there's a verse that says, a greater than Solomon is here. And it's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. A greater than Solomon is here. A wiser man. A God-man, actually. And of course, this was speaking of Jesus when he came and wore our flesh and walked on our earth and slept in our bed and ate our food. A greater than Solomon is here. And after Jesus had lived here and died and rose again, he sent out his personality, if you like, into the hearts of men and women. His Holy Spirit is another word for Jesus without his body, his other self. He sent himself into the hearts of those that would receive him. And there's a verse in the scriptures that says, when that happens, we have the mind of Christ. Now, if we have the mind of Christ, the one who is greater than Solomon with all his wisdom, then the Christian has the potential to be able to fathom out the decisions, the complex problems that they find themselves in. And so Solomon didn't have as much going for him as you and I have. He didn't have the possibility in the Old Testament sense that we do in the New Testament sense of actually possessing the life of Christ himself that he might lend us his wisdom. And I'm very tempted to take you to all sorts of passages, wonderful passages in the New Testament 
that talk about how Christ is made unto us wisdom, wisdom that we do not have, wisdom that a non-believer doesn't have available to him. He might be smart, he might be clever, he might be educated, but he doesn't have wisdom. There's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is an accumulation of facts, a computering of facts, a, a gathering of facts. You can be very smart with a lot of knowledge, but you can be very foolish in the things that really matter. And I was just thinking back over the little trips I've been doing lately to speak here and there, and I was just trying to think of things that people have said to me. And I have heard that word wisdom come up over and over again. A harried young mother spoke to me a few weeks back, and she muttered under her breath, I'm facing a son who doesn't want to visit his dad after our divorce. I need wisdom. And then I think about a parent that came to talk to Stuart and I together, was talking about his rebellious teenage daughter. And he was telling us about a school counselor that had called him in and said, look, we're pretty sure your daughter is smoking dope. We don't have hard evidence, but talk to him about that. And so he had confronted his daughter, and she had vehemently denied that she had anything to do with it. And they didn't know whether to believe her or not. And he came very, very troubled as a troubled parent as any of us would be with this situation. And he said, I need insight into the true nature of this situation, which is literally, word for word, a definition of wisdom. Insight into the true nature of the situation. And those were the words he used. And what he was saying was, I need wisdom. And then I think of the frustrated manager, a lady who had a lot of people working for her in a business situation. And she found her orders being undermined. She found discontent. She found people talking behind her back. She found there was a lot of jealousy going on and political maneuvering in order that she should be pushed out of her situation. And she came to me in tears and said, I don't know what to do with this. I'm a Christian believer. I want to handle it properly. I want to behave properly. But if I'm not careful, I'm going to lose my job unless I do some pretty hard things. I need wisdom. And you know, on a lower level, we all face choices every day that might not be as important as these, but they're important to us, aren't they? Domestic choices, relational choices, vocational choices, vacational choices, financial choices, medical choices, spiritual choices, choices every day. The choices ours to make. And we need to begin by realizing that choice is a gift that God gives us. We are not puppets. We are people with a mind and a will God-given of our own. And to have this personal choice is something that we count in America very, very precious indeed. The choice, the, the free will to choose, to live as we will, to believe as we will, to live where we will. Many, many people in this world don't have any of those choices available to them. And yet the greatest choice of all is a choice to believe, a choice to believe in God, believe into him, to receive what he wants to give us, or a choice to forget it, and to live our life without God, without reference to God, without our life showing any sense of Godness about it. And that's where Solomon began, and that's where we must begin. Now, if you look in 1 Kings chapter 3, there's a little verse in here about Solomon, verse 3. 
Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the statutes of his father David. Solomon showed his love for the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord. He knew the Lord. He had chosen to love God and to let God love him. It's a two-way thing. It's not all one way. It's not all the other way. We're talking about relationship. Any relationship takes two to make it work. And Solomon chose to respond to the relationship that God was offering to him and to love God back, for God was surely loving Solomon as he loves all of us all along. It's a question of choice whether we will accept his love, receive his love, and make the greatest choice of all. Now, the background of this man is very interesting. Talk about dysfunctional family. (laughs) You've got it. His father had eight wives, okay? His mother happened to be the last in the line of wives, and yet the favorite one. And she, many commentators of the Bible believe, a heathen woman, not an Israelitish woman. Now, I'm not sure about that because people have different opinions for different reasons, but it does look as though it might be true. However, he also had a lot of siblings, as you can imagine, with eight wives and a full-blooded man like David. He was the tenth son. We're not talking about daughters at this point. The tenth son. He had a brother that was older than him, but he died. He died very tragically and very sadly. Now, Bathsheba, his mother, had committed adultery with his father, And after getting rid of her husband in a murder plot, David and his mother got married. So you've really got a solid Christian family here, huh? We've got really something to go on. But at any rate, David, even though he had his faults, and that is very obvious, was a man who is considered to have loved God and put God first. And when faced with his crime, immediately confessed and repented when Nathan, the prophet, accused him, supernaturally realizing what had happened, sent to David by God, confronted him on this, David immediately said, I've sinned, I repent, and showed meat for repentance. However, Bathsheba was already pregnant. She had a little baby. But Nathan, the prophet, had told David that the child would die, and die it did. That was Solomon's older brother, who he never knew. Then Bathsheba and David had another child, the tenth and last son of David, and his name was Solomon. And for all sorts of reasons that we don't really understand, David favored Bathsheba and David favored Solomon. And he made Bathsheba a promise that Solomon would be king after him. Now David followed Saul, there had only been a couple of kings in the history of Israel, for God had said, I don't want you to have a king. I'm your king. But the people had rebelled against God, and they'd looked around and said, we want a king like everybody else. Make us a king. Give us a king. And in the end, God said to Samuel, let them have their way. Make them a king. They'll be sorry, but make them a king. And so Saul had become king. David had become king. And now Solomon was becoming king. So he had this interesting background. 
he had been brought up in this wild household where six of his half-brothers all had different mothers. Six of his half-brothers were sons of all these different wives. Now you think we have a mess on our hands at the moment when you look at some families, but just imagine this. Add to that political intrigue, add to that some of these sons who felt themselves far more in line for the throne than Solomon, who had decided to take the throne when David snuffed it, (laughs) just add all that into the pot and you have intrigue, you have things that would make soap operas blow off the screen going on in Solomon's home. And yet his teacher, his tutor, had been Nathan, the prophet. And so here he has a father that at his core, at his heart, loved God truly and wonderfully. And God said, he's a man after my own heart. Yes, he's made his mistakes, but David is a man after my own heart. And one day, through David's line, I will take human flesh and become part of his family. I will be born of David's line. David was a very, very special person. And Nathan the prophet was a very, very special prophet. Two people in this young man's life that had huge influence on him. And at some point along the line, Solomon made the greatest choice of all that all of us must face and all of us, hopefully, will make. He decided to love God as David, his father, had loved him, as Nathan, his beloved teacher, had taught him, and he made the greatest choice of all. Maybe he read his father's psalm, scribbled in his parchment devotional one day, Can you imagine Solomon going into his father's room? His father has just perhaps had devotions, and at the end of his devotions had scribbled down some things, and maybe he flipped over the pages except unrolled the scroll and came across, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me. Can you imagine him reading the 23rd Psalm that had not yet become the 23rd Psalm, just David's heart written onto his devotional scroll? You must understand that Solomon had heard many of David's psalms in his growing years. But at some point, like his father, who had come to say, The Lord is my shepherd, he came to say, The Lord is my shepherd, too. I'm sure you've heard a famous story now of a little boy in Scotland that was found in a snowdrift. And he had been a member of a little tiny church. And they had had a children's campaign, a children's revival, as they would say in the South here in America. A visiting evangelist had come, and he preached the gospel to this little group of people. And shortly afterwards, the weather had got bad, and the evangelist had left and gone home, and this little boy was found trying to find his way home from school, frozen to death. And so the parents wrote to the evangelist, and they wanted him to know that the little boy that he had spent time with in these Christian meetings in the church, this little revival, had suffered and died in this dreadful way. And the evangelist wrote and said he was so sorry, and so the parents began to write back, and they began to have this little correspondence. And during this correspondence, the parents said to the evangelist, it's the strangest thing, when they found the little boy, 
he had hold of his fourth finger. One, two, three, four, this one. And nobody can figure out why he had hold of this finger. And the evangelist immediately wrote back and said, oh, I'll tell you. The very last meeting when I called those little boys and little girls to make the greatest choice of all and accept Christ into their hearts, I used the verse of the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. And I talked about the Lord is. And when we came to my, I said, if you want the Lord to be your shepherd, get hold of that finger and say the Lord is my shepherd. That's why he died holding his little finger. For he'd made the greatest choice of all. Now, before we even start this series, let me ask you very seriously, have you made the greatest choice of all? Has there been a time when, like Solomon, like David, you've said, the Lord is my shepherd, like all of us must do? Do you love God because he first loved you? I was thinking of some examples, and there are so many testimonies, but I was reading in the FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes magazine, about a a wonderful girl called Susan Anderson. And the title of her article is Making the Right Choices. And she says, as a freshman in college, you're forced to either go one way or the other. As a Christian, you make the decision to either go to church or go drink and do what everyone else is doing. And then she tells this story, this wonderful story. She's a professional athlete. She played in Brazil for years. She played in Japan. And she tells the story of always having gone to church Her parents, both Christians, but even though their parents were Christians, I had to make a decision early in my life to put my trust in Christ. But as a freshman in college, that's when I was forced to either go one way or the other to make a choice. As a Christian, you make the decision to either go to church or go drink and do what everyone else is doing. It was then that Christianity became my own. When she was in Brazil, the story tells, they were out having some fun the last week of a week's games with a team, and they were on a fairground, and she was messing around with something on the Ferris wheel and lost her finger, tore her finger off her hand, literally. And this is the story of the testimony of how she reacted to that as a Christian believer. But she made the right choice, the greatest choice of all. Now, as I mentioned before, choice is a free gift because we're not a puppet. That's how God wants it. You see, if God had made us and then said, now love me, and just pulled a string so that we said, I love you, it wouldn't have brought any satisfaction to him at all. Now, as was mentioned, I am a grandma, and there is nothing gives me greater joy, and my heart smile, just makes my heart smile. I feel it going, ooh, like this, when my little grandchildren spontaneously say to me, I love you, grandma, I love you, There is nothing like it. And I remember last time it happened, I was at my daughter's house, and I said to Judy, you can't buy that, Judy. You can't buy it for millions and millions of dollars. And she said, I know. And you can't. And you see, if we'd been puppets, and I had just pulled the string and said to my grandchildren, love me, come over here and say, love me, and pull the string so they came over and said, I love you, what satisfaction would that have brought to my heart? And so the gift of free choice is obvious why God has given it to us. The scary thing is that we can use it against him as well as for him. Because the choice that is God's gift to us has consequences. We're free to exercise our free choice, but then we're free to live with the consequence of the free choice that we make. Adam and Eve made it. 
They made a choice to shut themselves off from God, to put distance between them, and they were ushered out of the Garden of Eden, and sin came into the world. Now, if you'd like to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 11, this was written by Solomon, this book. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 9, he's talking to young men. He's saying, now remember your creator when you're young. That's a very good idea. Not wait until you're older and you're decrepit like me now because people do believe that Ecclesiastes was written at the end of Solomon's life. You look at 11.9. Be happy, young man, while you're young. Let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see. But know that for all these things, God will bring you to judgment. Know for all these things, God will bring you for judgment. Have a great time in your youth. Have a great time in your middle age. Have a great time in your old age. But know that one day, judgment is coming. And so choice is a free gift, but choice has consequences. And we are accountable. Our actions have consequences. Personal consequences, social consequences. Our actions, our choices affect everybody. Solomon, as we will see, every choice he made affected thousands of people. We do not even know how many thousands. For the people that he governed were, as he put it, too numerous to count, literally. There were too many of them to count. Thousands and thousands of people. And every choice he made affected someone else. Now, we might not be responsible for thousands and thousands of people, but we all are responsible for someone. And you are amazed if you really start and write down all the people that you influence, that you touch, that you are accountable for, that you are responsible for in your life. How many people are affected by your choices? Just in the ordinary way of things. I remember years and years and years ago now making a choice to come and immigrate to America. And I remember talking to our 11-year-old and our 9-year-old and our 7-year-old. I remember Stuart coming home with this great news. We are going to live in America. And I remember the children. They were sitting around the table and their eyes got bigger and bigger and bigger and they were looking at each other and nobody was saying anything and it was such a big piece of news. And then we began to talk about what this might mean. And as we talked, Stuart and I, to the kids, and they started to ask their questions, and they came tumbling out, what sort of a school? Will it be bigger than our school that we go to? I said, oh, yes. They were in a one-room schoolhouse, (laughs) one classroom, Judy at one end and David at the other. And they were going to come here to Calhoun Road to a school that would just blow them away. It would be so big and so massive. And we were trying to tell them about all these exciting things that were ahead of them. And yet, my mind was racing forward and realizing that this was a huge choice that we were making as parents for our children. It would affect their heritage. It would affect their nationality. It would affect their education. It would affect their relationship with their grandparents. It would affect their accent. (laughs) Very definitely. It would affect the choice of a spouse. It would affect the nationality of our grandchildren. It would affect everything. And yet this was our choice that was going to have repercussions in the lives of how many people. And you know you can't make any choice 
that doesn't affect someone else. And oh, how much wisdom we needed to make that choice. And so the choice that God gives us, the choices that come to us after we've made the greatest choice of all, are hugely important because they affect other people. And we have a huge accountability to God for the choices we make and the responsibility to him as well. So Solomon made his choice and then noticed he behaved his belief. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the statutes of his father, David. He showed his love for the Lord by doing something. So he didn't just talk love, didn't just sing love. He didn't just go to church and worship and look as though he loved God. He showed that he loved God by the life that he lived. He behaved his belief. And that's the second thing we can learn from Solomon. That was very wise. He was a very wise man to make the greatest choice of all, choice to love God and let God love him and have a relationship with him. He was a very wise man to then go on to behave his belief, which he did for the most part all the way through his life until towards the end. Certainly here in the scriptures when we meet him, he was behaving his belief. Now how do you show your love for the Lord? just by giving some money in the offering plate, just by attending some Bible studies, just by reading your Bible, just by giving some charity money, just by what? Do you show your love for the Lord by behaving your belief? You know, the Bible says we're to walk worthy. Ephesians says live a life worthy of the calling you've received. I had a lovely story down south when I was there not too many weeks ago. Somebody asked a, a real broad when I say broad, I mean accent broad, <laughs> a real uh, character that I was sitting around a table with. How did you get converted, Irma? Her name was Irma. And she was an old gal who had a big smile on her face and loved Jesus. And so she sort of looked a little blank, and the man said, well, who's preaching? Who's preaching were you converted under? And she said, nobody's preaching. Aunt Mary's practicing. <laughs> nobody's preaching. Aunt Mary's practicing. That's what got to her. Somebody behaved their belief. Showing their love by walking according to David's statutes, which, of course, is the Ten Commandments, which is the law of God, the word of God. Ephesians 5.15, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. And the word is circumspectly, which means like a cat on hot bricks. <laughs> That's a phrase we have in England. I don't know if you have it here. But if you can imagine a cat on hot bricks picking your way. Do you have that phrase? It's very descriptive. Can you see a cat on hot bricks? Just picking your way. You have to be so careful. Ooh, all the way around. 1 John 2.6. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. What a verse. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. In his steps, we're supposed to walk in Jesus' steps. He said, follow me. We're supposed to walk like Jesus did. That means live like Jesus did. Who can live like Jesus did? Jesus. And when Jesus comes into our heart, he gives us the strength from within. And we hang our weakness on his strength. We can't. He can. He will. He does. And that's Christianity. I remember shortly after emigrating on that wonderful day, in fact, I was telling that to a young 
waiter over at, in this corner cafe. Stuart and I were grabbing a, a bite to eat. He'd just come in from California, and we met in the restaurant, and then I came here, and he went home. And this young man said, is there anything else you want? And I said, yes, red sauce. He said, what? I said, red sauce. Stuart said, ketchup. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm either tired or something, but ketchup at home, it's red sauce. So we were, Stuart and I were having this argument, and Stuart was telling me to get with it and communicate, you know. It's about time I knew not to say red sauce and to say what I should say. And the young boy was standing looking at us, and he said, where are you from? <laughs> and in one breath, Stuart said Economic, and I said England. <laughs> so he looked at us again, and then we began arguing again where we were living. And I said, well, we live in Economic, we're from England. So then he said, how long have you been here? And he said, and you've still got an accent. And then my husband said, no, we haven't. You have. And then he began arguing with the boys. So we were having a wonderful time over there. But I remember shortly after coming here that we met our first snowfall. And this was very exciting. We had just arrived. We had never seen so much snow. We arrived in November, just about two weeks before Thanksgiving. The kids were just ecstatic, except they weren't equipped and we just went out and had fun anyway. We didn't have any clothes or boots or whatever, but Stuart said, let's go and find a hill somewhere, and we'll play on it. We didn't have sleds, or we didn't have any equipment, but we just went, and we found a hill somewhere in Brookfield, and I remember Stuart going up to the top of this hill, and we all toiled up to the top of the hill, and then he just started whooping and running down the hill with great big strides, daddy strides. It was wonderful, and then he stood at the bottom of the hill, and he looked up at the door, and he said, okay, now come down in my steps. And I remember trying my hardest and just uh, certainly falling short, but not too much short of, of Daddy's steps and arriving at the bottom of the hill. And then we both turned up and said, come on, Dave first. And David looked there and, and he started to try. And of course, he came short. And then I remember Judy trying. She came shorter. And then little Pete. Pete was seven. Pete was going to do it. He's a competitor, you know, and so here he is, future basketball. Of course, now he could beat his daddy and me put together with his six-foot-six legs. But here he came down the hill, and he missed it. And he got very upset. And he said, Daddy, I couldn't do it, I couldn't do it, I couldn't walk in your steps. And I remember Stuart taking Pete and saying, Come on, Pete, come up here with me. And he took him back up the hill again. And he stood there at the top, and he took that little boy, that seven-year-old boy, and he put him on his feet. And he put his arms underneath him. He said, are you ready, Pete? Pete said, yeah, Dad. And they came down the hill in his steps. And you see, that's Christianity. Resting in the Father's strength. Resting in the Father's arms, in his power. Only can you walk in his steps. And so if you want to show the love of God, you cannot do it without the God you love. You cannot live the Christian life without the Christ of the Christian life. But with him within, he lends you his strength. And resting in him, you can walk in his steps. And so Solomon made his choice, behaved his belief, and thirdly, prayed for wisdom. And if you see in chapter 3, back in 1 Kings, he had gone to worship to Gibeon, verse 4, and offer sacrifices the temple had not yet been built. That's what Solomon was going to do. That was one of the things God called him to do. 
And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Wow. Can you imagine? And Solomon answered, You've shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You've continued this great kindness to him. You've given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, O Lord my God, you've made your servant king in the place of my father David, but I'm only a little child, and I don't know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you've chosen, a great people too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong, for who is able to govern this great people of yours? And the Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. And God said to him, Since you've asked for this, and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administrating justice. I will do what you've asked, and I'll give you a wise and discerning heart, so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you haven't asked for, both riches and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon awoke, and he realized it had been a dream. And so he prayed for wisdom. And after you've made the greatest choice of all and faced the rest of your life, where daily you must make very difficult choices, and after you have begun to begin to learn how to behave your belief as you grow in God and in your knowledge of him, then you will need moment by moment every day of your life to pray the prayer of Solomon. Give me wisdom, Lord. Give me wisdom. You'll need to make it a priority, that's for sure. He was wise enough to ask for wisdom. James says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men and doesn't chide you for it, and you will receive it. So how did Solomon become so wise? He made his choice. He behaved his belief. And he prayed for wisdom. So how can I? Let's look at the things, the steps that we need to take. First of all, you need to be honest with God. In other words, you need to quit trying to be God, to play God. You know, when you're a parent, you often do that. I remember in my parenting years uh, when the children were growing through those turbulent pre-teen and teenage years. Just finding myself, if I wasn't careful, just playing God, being God, omniscient. I wanted to know everything. Who's that on the phone? Who's coming to the door? Who's in the car? Who did you sit with on the bus? I wanted to be omniscient. I wanted to be omnipresent. (laughs) Oh, yes. Three kids. I wanted to be where all of them were all of the time. I wanted to be God. Omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. Word tells you what it means. All-powerful. I want to control. That's the one thing you can't have as your kids begin to grow into independence, which they must, which is what parenting is all about. And I had to get honest with God. I had to come to him, as Solomon did, and say, it's too much. I'm overwhelmed with the size of this problem of parenting. I'm overwhelmed by the task. And you have to say so. He said so. Here I am among these people, a great people, too much to number. It's too much. It's too big. Have you ever felt like that? 
Now, one of the things I do is I go around and I speak to people, sometimes as little groups, sometimes as big groups. And I remember after doing a lot of street evangelism, being out in the streets speaking sometimes to a lot of kids and the little kids, I had never seen certainly more than 5,000 people at a time in front of me. And the very third or fourth meeting I was ever asked to take in America was over in Michigan. And it was called Winning Women. It was, it was I want to say, a large women's conference. What I mean is a conference for women, <laughs> not large women. I, I remember going with a friend of mine I asked her to go with me for moral support. I had never spoken to a large group of women before. I was usually talking to youngsters. I had no idea what I had accepted. I just knew it was a women's conference. And we get to Lansing, Michigan, to the convention center. And we walk in, and there on the lift is two very famous, well-known women speakers who are speaking. And Jill Briscoe, who's she, you know? And I remember getting in the lift, beginning to feel desperately inadequate, desperately like Solomon felt. I am only a little child. I don't know how to carry out my duties. Desperately inadequate, overwhelmed by the task. It's too much. It's too big. And I tell you, I did not even see the auditorium because you come in by a back way. But that night, as I walked into the auditorium from the curtains at the back, I could hear the women talking. It just sounded like fish. I don't know why it reminded me of fish, just an ocean full of fish. And I remember clutching my friend and freezing and said to her, look around that curtain and tell me how many women are out there. And she looked around and she went white. I mean, she wasn't doing anything. (laughs) It's me that was going to have to do something. So I clutched her and she clutched me and I said, how many? She said, a lot. (laughs) I, I said, how many? She said, Five balconies full up there. 5,000 women. 5,000 women. And I remember peeking around and literally my heart just stopping. And I remember saying to my friend, I can't do this. I'm overwhelmed by the task. Here I am among these people, a great people, too numerous to count or number. I prayed desperately for wisdom. Then the guest speaker the other guest speaker, the famous guest speaker, had apparently just had an experience that was rather wild and had sort of got a little off key. So the leader of the conference says to me as I'm sitting there paralyzed on my seat in the middle of this event, I have had to ask the other guest speaker not to speak. But she's got a bit off key. So you're going to have to do twice as much. Okay? <laughs> And I said, no, no, (laughs) not okay. (laughs) It was an incredible, incredible situation. Desperately unsure of myself. New to this whole thing, America included. And the heavy expectations, just like Solomon, that were on him. Expectations of these people. They expected me to be able to do this. I said to this lady, you crazy or something? (laughs) Why'd you invite me to do this? I mean, I've never spoken to people like this. Oh, yes, yes, you can do it, you can do it. How do you know I can do it? I don't know I can do it. How do you know I can do it? (laughs) Heavy expectations. My husband has said, you can do it. Go on, you can do it. All these people's expectations, and yet you know in your heart of hearts how desperately inadequate you are. That's just like Solomon. Well, dependence is the key to power. 
he found that out. And it takes humility to depend. It takes humility to say, I can't do it. And then God says, well, you can't. I never said you could, but I will. I always said I would. You can't, but I never said you could. I will. I always said I would. You know, my little grandchildren are into the stage. I do it myself. I do it myself. I do it myself. And they can't. It just drives you crazy. You get them into their car seats. I do it myself. I do it myself. And they're so complicated, these car seat things. And I got a bad back. And here I am on my knees in front of this wriggly child who's saying, I do it myself, and pushing me away. And I've got to get these children to school, the other children to school, and they're doing it myself. It is the most frustrating thing. And, you know, that's what God must feel like sometimes when he sees us pushing his hands away and saying, I do it myself, I do it myself. And you know why God lets us be overwhelmed? You know why he lets us face choices that are far too big for us to make so that we will be driven to depend on him and to find him adequate for all that we need. And that's what happened with Solomon. And you know, when you're overwhelmed, you don't ask for health and you don't ask for wealth and you don't ask for safety and security and you don't ask for success because the bigger issue is, Lord, help me do the right thing with this mess. Give me wisdom. And that was a very, very wise prayer that he prayed. And I want to tell you, it's a prayer that God will always answer. It's a prayer that God will always answer. If you say, I want to do the right thing, I want to walk in the statutes of the word of God, I want to behave my belief, I want to make the right decision, I want to behave properly in this impossible situation, and Lord, it is too big for me, but it is not too big for you. And I look at my problems through my God, and he gives me wisdom to know what to do with the incredible mess that I face, however big the problem God is bigger than my problem. And so, how did Solomon become so wise? He made his choice, he behaved his belief, he prayed for wisdom, and God answered him. Humility is the key to wisdom. And even if you're overwhelmed by the task, desperately inadequate, huge expectations burying you, dependence is the key to power. And what you need to do is to allow yourself be pressed by your problems into God and to rest in him. And then he'll help you walk in his steps and do the right thing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the wisdom of Solomon. Thank you for what this scripture taught us. Many of us, Lord, face problems, certainly not as big as Solomon faced, and yet to us, they're as big as we face. They're as overwhelming. To us, they make us feel inadequate and small and like a little child that doesn't know how to behave itself doesn't know what to do, so small, so frail, so weak. And Lord, thank you that you are a God who are bigger than all of our problems and wiser than all the men in the world put together. For a greater than Solomon came to us, lived and died and rose again and sent his spirit, his mind, into our soul that we might have the mind of Christ that Christ might be made unto us the wisdom that we do not have. And that as we learn to know him, communicate with him, look to him, listen to him, learn of him, we might walk in his steps like he walked, make the decisions he would have made, figure it out as he would have figured it out. Lord, help us. We are such needy people. And the world 
is so complex. And yet, dear God, thank you that you came to be our help, our wisdom. And I ask, dear Lord, for anyone who has never made the greatest choice of all, that perhaps in this very quiet moment, we might say very simply, I want to love you, God. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for me. Please, by your Spirit, come into my heart, as you did into so many people's hearts, and be my Savior, my friend, my wisdom, for I need you so much, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for answering these sort of prayers, for these are the prayers that delight you. We ask all these things for Christ's sake. Amen.